in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, we're finding out how to reduce cancer risk for people with red hair and how machine learning is speeding up our analysis of the universe's gravitational distortions. Plus, an update on a big story from a few weeks ago. This is The Nature Podcast for September the 7th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up this week... Adam's been looking into a problem that is plaguing researchers around the world. Kelly Kobe is the publications officer in Ottawa Hospital in Canada. She deals with all sorts of issues researchers might have. But one researcher stands out. He'd received an invitation to submit a paper to a journal. So he went ahead and submitted a paper. And uh, shortly thereafter, his manuscript was accepted. Uh, there was no peer review, and uh, he was asked to pay an article processing charge for that. So at this point, alarm bells went off. He knew something wasn't right. This is not the typical uh, process. He was shaken up and quickly tried to retract his manuscript. But to his astonishment, the journal told him he'd have to pay a retraction fee to avoid the piece being published. The journal eventually actually went forward and did publish that uh, paper without his consent. It was a very frustrating situation for this author. This researcher had fallen prey to a predatory journal. And he's far from alone. There's growing concern about these kinds of unscrupulous publications. But what actually is a predatory journal? Predatory journals are perhaps explained by their behaviour, or I would say perhaps by their misbehaviour, this is David Mower, who works on publication science, also at Ottawa Hospital. David tells me that predatory journals can misbehave in a plethora of ways. They may claim to do peer review while really having no such process. Members of the journal's editorial board may not even have heard of the journal. In one particularly extreme case... There was an editor-in-chief of a journal who, unfortunately, the gentleman was dead for two years... But although predatory journals are defined by dodgy practices, what defines the research they publish has remained unclear. And so, David and collaborators have laboriously studied almost 2,000 biomedical articles published in predatory journals. And these papers reveal some unexpected patterns. I think our biggest surprise is, is, is that um, these journals... Um, are populated by research coming from all nations. There was this belief that perhaps um, most of what was appearing in these journals was coming from, you, you know, low-middle-income countries or uh, countries who couldn't afford to publish elsewhere. And the surprises didn't end there. There are publications from authors at top institutions with prestigious funding sources. In fact, in David's sample, the US National Institutes of Health was the most commonly named funding source. But while the research may come from well-respected institutions, the papers themselves were often of a strikingly low standard. Papers often omitted to mention how samples were randomised, for example. And this wasn't the only thing that they missed out. A, a fair number 
of uh, reports who should have um, been very explicit about having consent and ethics approval were missing. And that speaks to the broader issue of um, editorial oversight in these um, entities. To David, these insights reveal the harm caused by these publications. The bottom line is that, uh, you know, for funders, this is extremely wasteful. It's wasteful in terms of human resources, people participating, and and it's a, a waste of resources. So what can be done to reduce this waste? David is keen to stress that we don't yet have data on why academics submit to these journals in the first place. But Kelly tells me that the man who realised too late that he'd submitted to a predatory journal is far from unique. Kelly comes across many researchers who are unaware of the warning signs. When I cover predatory journals, giving seminars, uh, inevitably I'll get emails uh, after the lecture or folks will come up to me after the lecture starting to wonder about the integrity of where they submitted. And that's been a, a reoccurring theme after giving outreach. So one way of combating predatory journals is simply for more academics to know how to spot them. One paper in BMC Medicine identifies 13 characteristics of predatory journals. But Kelly says that one of the most important things a researcher can do is be wary of their inbox. It's quite rare to get a sort of um, solicitation from a journal uh, that you've never heard of, Uh, so that would be, I think, a red flag for me. Raising awareness of red flags like this would help. But David feels like there are many other steps that could and should be taken to fight back against predatory journals. Academic institutions and funders need to come together and develop policies and procedures and put them in place to really work at um, making sure that people do not submit um, to these entities. And so if we have a combination of more research, training and policies, I think if we take that as a sort of a, a poly intervention, then I think we will really stop predatory journals in their movement forward. That was David Mower and Kelly Kobe. David's written a comment piece and Kelly's written a worldview on predatory journals and you can find both at nature.com forward slash news. To help spot predatory journals yourself, check out the paper in BMC Medicine. That's Shamsir et al. and published in 2017. Most common human hair colour is black, and there's a spectrum all the way through brown to light blonde. But around one in a hundred people have naturally red hair. It's associated with fair skin, freckles, and is more common in people whose ancestors came from northern or western Europe. It's also associated with a particular medical problem, a problem that Ruth Tao Tsui wanted to solve. My study is trying to understand and find a way to prevent a skin cancer, a most malignant form of skin cancer, melanoma, in red hair individuals. You know, red hair individuals uh, is frequently diagnosed with melanoma. Your chances of developing melanoma, the most dangerous type of skin cancer, are significantly increased if you have red hair. That's why Rutao and his colleagues wanted to study the mechanisms behind this link. Their research is being published in Nature this week, along with a News and Views article, 
and I spoke to one of the News & Views authors, Liz Patton, of the MRC Human Genetics Unit at Edinburgh about the research. I asked her why redhead people are at a higher risk of developing melanoma. So it's because they have a mutation in this gene called MC1R, and this is a receptor that responds to signals following UV damage. So the UV uh, from the sun um, goes onto our skin, and that activates the MC1R receptor. And one of the things it does is it stimulates pigmentation, so that's why we get a tan. And so people that have an MC1R mutation, rather than making a dark brown pigment to protect the skin and have a tan, they form a red pigment, and they freckle, and they don't tan very well. So this is why my red-haired friend complains that he'll, he just gets sunburnt. Exactly. So they don't have the potential to tan. And what's quite interesting about it is that even having one copy of the MC1R variant or mutation can put you at greater risk of melanoma. Right. So my red-haired grandmother could could make me at more risk of um, developing melanoma. Yes, exactly. Darn, none of us are safe. <laughs> and so the, the MC1R is linked specifically to melanin, that, that brown tint that you get yes. when you tan. Yes. And this team wanted to figure out exactly how the MC1R protein is affecting the melanin production in your skin and affecting melanoma formation. Uh, and what did they discover about how it actually works? So what they discovered was that at the end of this MC1R receptor is a site where the receptor can be palmetylated. So it adds a lipid And what they found was that people with red hair and poor ability to tan and increased freckling, they found that they have lower levels of palmitylation. So this is the word that I've been um, trying to practice pronouncing, palmitylation. (laughs) Yes. And it's a modification of the protein and it's what's missing in people with this uh, gene variant, that there's not enough palmitylation happening And that's what seems to be causing all the the defects. So the skin not tanning properly, not providing proper protection from UV rays. And now that they've figured out that that's how it works, can we use this understanding to actually prevent melanoma? Yeah. And this is what, for me, this is what's really exciting about their paper is that they can use a small molecule or, you know, drug-like compounds to increase the palmetylation and then rescue the defects in the MC1R variant. So to me, that's really exciting because that suggests that you could use a drug to um, help prevent some of those phenotypes associated with this mutation. And they actually tested this on mice and they got mice with the the red-haired gene. That's right. They engineered a mouse that had a variant that is found in people And then this mouse also has sort of the red hair phenotype. And what they found is that if they increased palmetylation, now the MC1R worked more like a normal variant of MC1R and uh, had a a reduced risk of melanoma, a reduced incidence of melanoma. So there's a drug that works in mice essentially to reduce this high risk of melanoma formation. Yes. Um, But this is a an intervention that's sort of preventative. Um, so obviously the dream would be, right, can we stop people getting skin cancer? Is is that a, a practical approach? I mean, that's a fascinating question. I mean, these are sort of some of the questions that we're now entering into in our personalised medicine genomic era. You know, should should we be thinking about 
drugs to treat otherwise healthy people to prevent a disease that they don't have yet? It, and I think that's a really important question. So I think probably it's unlikely that um, you would use this as a preventative treatment on a large population scale. You know, one one case is you could imagine if someone was badly burned um, that you would want to stimulate the repair of the damage in the DNA. And so this drug or other strategies that target the similar pathway might be appropriate in that context. You mentioned personalised medicine. So if I were to have my genome analysed and even if I don't have red hair, were to find out I'm at increased risk, I personally might want this preventative treatment. I guess my personal feeling is that uh, we know there are uh, sunburn prevention strategies, you know, wearing clothing and sunscreen. And those are really known ways to prevent, uh, to reduce your risk of melanoma. So that's probably still a safer bet. Yes, absolutely. Don't get sunburned, yes. basically. Yeah. You and your co-author mentioned at the very end of the News and Views, um, are there sort of natural products that could have the same effect? Right, yeah. I mean, when I was young, people used to put coconut oil and this kind of thing um, when they were tanning. And I always thought that was just to make their skin kind of not dry out. But um, actually, uh, people claim that it can give a better tan. And there has been a publication about palmitic acid ester in some uh, natural products that um, can stimulate melanin in melanocytes. So it makes you wonder if there are some of these uh, natural products out there that are stimulating the tanning response. Further research, that's that's the next stage then, whether we should all be slathering ourselves in coconut oil, but as well as not instead of sun cream, right? Yes. <laughs> this is turning into a public service announcement about yes, telling exactly. people to wear sunscreen. <laughs> wear sunscreen, wear clothing. <laughs> That was Liz Patton from the University of Edinburgh with her top tips for avoiding sunburn, especially likely if you have lighter coloured skin. You also heard from study author Rutao Tsui, who's based at the Boston University School of Medicine. You can read both the paper and the News and Views article at nature.com forward slash nature. If you were paying attention to the science news a few weeks ago, or even if you weren't, you probably heard about a new study on gene editing human embryos. Well, since then, some doubts have been raised about this work. We'll take a look at the latest on this story in the news chat at the end of the show. Now, though, it's time for two new pieces of research. It's this week's Research Highlights with Charlotte Stoddart. A normally asexual organism has been thrown into a mating frenzy by a bacterial protein. Coanoflagellates are the single-celled organisms most closely related to animals. They usually multiply by dividing themselves, so don't need a sexual partner. However, when a marine bacterium was let loose in a dish of coanoflagellates, they got a bit frisky, clustered together, and reproduced sexually. It turned out the bacterium was secreting a protein which acted like an aphrodisiac on the normally celibate flagellates. Naturally, the researchers named the protein Eros, after the Greek god of sex appeal. More on this raunchy research in Cell. The lure of moving to Canada is spreading to some rather unwelcome insects. Southern pine beetles are destructive denizens of America's deep south. They burrow into the bark of fir trees, sometimes proving fatal to entire forests. Their happy chomping ground is usually restricted by an invisible wall of cold weather to the north. 
But a study of recent beetle expansion in New Jersey revealed that beetles scuttle into new areas when winter temperatures stay above minus 10 degrees Celsius for 10 years. If the climate warms as models predict, these pests could be laying waste to woodlands in Canada within the next few decades. Nor on the details in Nature Climate Change. When you picture a lens, you might think of a camera lens, a microscope lens, or maybe even an eye. But you probably don't think of a galaxy trillions of miles away from Earth. But galaxies and other massive objects can act as gravitational lenses, distorting the light from galaxies elsewhere in the universe. And now scientists have developed a new method of analysing these light distortions. Reporter Anand Jagatir spoke to astrophysicist Yasha Hezova from Stanford University. Anand started by asking him how gravitational lenses actually work. If you ever look at an image of something with a magnifying glass, you know, the image looks distorted. And the reason that the image looks different and distorted is the light rays coming from that background object are getting bent by the glass because of its refraction. A similar phenomena happens, you know, when we look in the skies, uh, but because of gravity. So we have two galaxies, one galaxy in the middle, we call it the lens galaxy, just like the magnifying glass, and a second galaxy that could be much farther away. And so as the light rays of the background galaxy pass near the foreground galaxy, the lens galaxy, they get bent because of gravity. And so as a result here on the Earth, when we look at them, we see this distorted image of the background galaxy. And sometimes we even see two, three, four different images of the same background galaxy. It's a little bit like, you know, uh, looking inside the funhouse mirrors. So, so can you describe what these galaxies actually look like once they've been distorted in this way? It's really fascinating. You see this middle galaxy that looks like a normal galaxy. It's elliptical, it's spiral or something like that. And there's this crazy ring or multiple images around it. In fact, you know, if at home you ever get a wine glass and look at, uh, you know, image of a candle through the foot of the wine glass, they produce a very similar kind of effect that you can see like a ring shape and sometimes, you know, multiple, you know, half arcs around around the, the stem of the wine glass. It's a very similar effect where, you know, gravity is actually bending light and redirected to come to us. Is gravitational lensing a problem then if we're trying to look at objects in, in the sky? I mean, if they're getting distorted by other objects, is, does, is that why it's a problem? Because we can't really get a good sense of what you know, their structure is. It could be a problem, but mostly it's, it's a great tool. So we actually use gravitational lenses to look at galaxies that would be otherwise really difficult to detect in our telescopes to observe. It magnifies them so we can look at them with much higher you know, resolution and much sharper images. But as you mentioned, it also distorts this image. So we need to find a way to actually correct for this distortion. It's like, you know, again, like looking at yourself in a mirror that is distorted. You know, maybe the mirror makes us look a little bit skinnier or a little bit chubbier. And so we need to figure out exactly what part of this is my own image and what part of it is the distortion caused by the mirror. So how do we go about doing that then? If we stick with the funhouse mirrors analogy, how do you go about trying to make sense of that image? So we say... I will come up with a model for what I am, what I look like, and I will come up with a model for how the mirror is, and now I need to simulate it. So I put my own image through a distortion by the mirror and produce a, you know, a distorted image. Maybe I look a little bit taller. And then I compare that image to the real data that I have, and I say, you know, based on statistics and noise and things like that, how likely is it that the true answer is what I basically calculated in the first place? 
So we need to go through probably, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of different answers for that, you know, kind of simulations. And for each one of them, simulate the whole thing, compare it to the data, and then move on to the next one. But next time we have another problem, we need to redo the whole thing again. So I guess your approach in this paper is is trying to get around some of these difficulties. And you were using deep learning, right? So you were training neural networks to, to, to analyze these pictures. So what, what we use in this work is something called convolutional neural networks. And so these neural networks are generally developed for image recognition. It's a part of this uh, you know, umbrella of machine learning. And what that means is that this algorithm learns from data. We don't specifically tell it what to look at you know, in the data. So we show the algorithm all the correct examples. We show it an, a distorted image, and then we tell it what the true answer is. And so by showing a lot of different examples, uh, the networks can figure out what are the important key features in these things that are distinguishing uh, the, the, the answers that we're looking for. And, and how well did the networks do? Did they do just as well as existing methods? Yeah, they were doing absolutely amazing. You know, we, we, were, we were truly shocked how amazing they were doing. They are doing basically, as, as far as we know, very, very close to the precision of uh, traditional modeling methods. Is it much quicker than using the, the, the original methods that you were talking about? Yeah, so, so we're looking at something about more than 10 million times improvement in speed. And so here we can analyze a single gravitational lens in probably a hundredth of a second. Given that these networks are so much quicker, what could using them allow researchers to do? The first thing is that in the next uh, decade, we're expecting to have thousands of new gravitational lenses that, that will be discovered. There are like lots of you know, interesting surveys that are coming up. And so analyzing these lenses with traditional methods will be absolutely difficult. And so with neural nets, we can just pass the data and within a few seconds have answers for all of them to teach us many things about the universe. The second thing has to do with complex models. So even for a single gravitational lens right now, sometimes these gravitational lenses are not as simple as what we said in this work. Sometimes clusters, they have uh, hundreds of galaxies in them, and all of them together are distorting the image of the background galaxy. And for these things, modeling a single lens gets immensely difficult. So people can spend years on the analysis of a single gravitational lens. So my hope is that with these neural nets, we can actually model much more complex density structures. That was Yasha Hezever speaking to Anand Jagatir. Find the study in the usual place. Now it's time for the news chat. And this week we're talking again about a big story from a few weeks ago on gene editing in human embryos. Um, it was research that caused quite a big splash at the time. But since then, there have been some debate about the claims made in the paper. Ewan Calloway has written a news piece about this and he joins me in the studio now. So Ewan, since it was published, there have been some disagreements from some scientists about the results? Yes, there have been some, some disagreements or some lack of clarity on, on some issues. Uh, maybe I should refresh our listeners on what the, what the paper was and what it showed. It was, I mean, a landmark paper. I, I think, you know, that, that's, that, that, that much is clear. It wasn't the first report to, to use CRISPR... Uh, cast iron genome editing in human embryos, but it was by far the most successful. And they were able to correct in, in human embryos this mutation linked to uh, sudden cardiac death. And what they reported was quite curious, I'd say, because normally the way you try and correct mutations is by you introduce your own version of this gene that you want to insert, right? So you put in kind of, you call it a synthetic version, but normally you know, you'd think it'd be, a, it'd be a healthy version of this gene. And the researchers found that that's not actually how correction occurred. They found 
that correction occurred by copying the healthy version in the egg into the sperm, which had the mutant version. So that was a quite a quite a surprising finding and and quite an important one. When we um, when we were chatting about the paper, we were talking about designer babies and the sort of controversial issues, um, and this sort of surprising science finding that the maternal copy of the gene was being used as a template to kind of fix the the broken version. Um, was just sort of a, a minor interest, but now that's the bit that's being called into question. Some some scientists have concerns or have questions about whether Metalopov's team really did as they say. Did they prove that the maternal healthy version of this gene was copied onto the sperm, onto the paternal version to, to fix it? Um, that's, that's what this is all about. So what's their alternative theory for Metalopov's team's results? They, they, they point out that, okay, so when sperm uh, fertilizes an egg, their genomes, so that you've got the sperm genome, the paternal, paternal genome, and the egg genome, they're enshrouded in membranes on opposite sides of an egg cell. And so they, they, they were saying that, you know, when, when, when possibly can genome editing occur such that maternal version is copied and replaced, and it replaces the paternal version. So instead, they're suggesting that perhaps, perhaps uh, one of two, two things might have happened. Sometimes eggs can self-fertilize. It's called parthenogenesis. It happens in, in the wild, in some sharks, some other animals. And it's been shown it, you can induce it to occur in the lab in human embryos. They, don't, they couldn't develop into human beings. But if you had a situation in which the egg self-fertilized and just kind of ignored the paternal genome, it would look like you had two maternal copies of this gene. Um, that's one hypothesis. The other one is that maybe a huge chunk of DNA was removed from these embryos and they just couldn't detect it because they weren't using an appropriate genetics assay. So they only detected the mother's copy and they said, aha, there's no, there's no mutant copy here. Um, we fixed it. Because they, they were trying to replace the mutant copy with their own version. But when they looked, their own version wasn't there, but the maternal copy was. So I guess the idea is maybe the maternal copy was the only thing they saw because they didn't see the sort of absence of the mutant paternal copy because it had been taken out. Exactly. That's that's one possibility. And this isn't just comments. They've written up a full paper. It's on the uh, bioarchive preprint server, but it hasn't been sort of peer-reviewed or, or published yet. No, it's, it was posted to the to the bioarchive preprint server. And Metalopov uh, sent a statement saying basically, you know, that he thought this was speculation, uh, but they say they're preparing a response to explain uh, why they believe uh, these critics aren't correct. So, I mean, that I guess we'll just have to stay tuned for that, really. So we'll have to have you back on to keep following that story as it develops. Thank you very much, Ewan. And you can find Ewan's news piece at nature.com forward slash news. And to hear our original report, you can listen to The Nature Podcast from August 3rd. That's all we've got time for this week. But if you want to stay in touch, do make sure to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Climate Adam. And I'm at S. Bundell. That's imaginative. Thank you. Similarly imaginative is Nature News. Find that at Nature News. Until next time, I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. <laughs> <laughs>